Hi, welcome back to Tales. I'm your host, Doug Scott. This is Chapter 2 in the Brewerytown 1950s Memoir Series. In preparing the tale you're about to hear, I recalled reading one of my kids' Little House on the Prairie stories based on a child's perceptions of life in the Midwest in the late 19th century. One incident the author, Laura Ingalls Wilder, shared stuck with me. It was about a special Christmas present old Pa Ingalls wanted to get for her. The gift Ingalls had in mind was not available in their frontier location, so he hoped his friend Isaiah Edwards could find it in the distant city where he was working to supplement his income. On Christmas Eve, Edwards trudged through a snowstorm to get the special gift to Pa Ingalls, so he'd be able to surprise Laura on Christmas morning. The fabulous present? Drum roll, please. A red ribbon for her hair. Precious in its simplicity. The zen-like appreciation and value in the ordinary. The Music Man segment reflects on simpler, leaner times in my life when little things meant a lot. Enjoy! As a kid, growing up in North Philly in the early 50s, I didn't have much exposure to different kinds of music. This was a transitional era on the music cusp before rock and roll, bandstand with Bob Horn and Lee Stewart, Grady and Hurst, Wibbage, and my favorite DJ known as the Rockin' Bird. In the period between World War II themed tunes with Big Band and the rock and roll era, my brother and a local grocer were to change things big time, for us anyway. The lightning rod that energized our music awakening was a used record player. My brother Pat bought it from Mr. Chinitsky, who owned one of the little groceries up the street from us. Hard to imagine today with our houses full of stuff, but back then, for our family, having a record player in the house was truly a big deal. I can still see the little brown speckled box with the latches and strap handle. We could play 78s on it as well as the new 45s with the little plastic inserts, remember them? That let them fit on the spindle. Very, very cool. I didn't know how my brother Pat and Mr. Chinitsky arranged the transaction, but guess it must have been associated with my brother's current obsession with all things Jewish. Pat had a job after school and on Saturdays at Abe's Grocery and Butcher Shop at Hollywood and Thompson. He earned his spending money at Abe's and was able to pass mom a few bucks on the side. Since working at Abe's, Pat had become enamored of the Jewish culture, their traditions and habits. He integrated Yiddish expressions he heard at the store into his lexicon and would slip them into conversations whenever he could. When he came home from Abe's, if mom asked him how things went, he'd say, Oi, give out. <laughs> mom, mom would get a kick out of it and chuckle, but dad would yell, What the hell's that supposed to mean? He'd put down the paper and plead to mom, Helen, what's the matter with that boy? He'd shake his head and then go back to reading the bulletin. Pat was a saver and squirreled money away so he could get special things he wanted, like the record player. If he scored good tips on Saturday, he'd give me a quarter, first off so I'd shut up, and then secondly so I could run up to Al's on Gerard and get a couple of comics and a candy bar. Big Brothers, eh, I guess are good for something sometimes. 
Everyone in the neighborhood seemed to be in the same boat, struggling with finances, squeezing what little they had just to provide the essentials for their families. There wasn't a lot of extra money floating around, so if kids wanted candy and comics or anything else not in the budget, we had to pretty much earn it ourselves. I was too young for a regular job like my brother, so like all the kids, I hunted bottles for deposit, ran errands, and in the summer hauled spring water up from the rock garden down in the park. The Rocky, as we called it, wasn't too far from where we lived on 30th Street, so when it got really hot out, people would bring out those, you know, the, remember those big empty gallon wine jugs? Everybody seemed to have them. And they'd give you a nickel if you got water for them down at the fountain in the park. Now, in my opinion, that job deserved a dime. But most of our customers were old ladies and only gave you a nickel. Worse than that, if I saw any of my mom's friends on the stoop with empty wine bottles sitting next to them, I'd try to hide because I wasn't allowed to take money from mom's friends. That really stunk. That was a lot of work for nothing. My brother was a bit older than me, so he got the ordered boy job at Abe's. He loved being such an important player at that store, involved in all the excitement. It was always busy and very noisy. Abe's was quite a place. There were wood shavings on the floor, dead chickens and strings of sausages hanging from hooks on the wall behind the counter, and all kinds of weird stuff in the display case. Nobody spoke at Abe's. Everybody yelled and complained. They yelled in English and that other language my brother Pat liked to use that annoyed my dad. It was crazy in there. My dad's mom lived down Hollywood Street. He had to walk past Abe's to get to Grandma's house. And when he got home, he'd tell us that, well, you know, I had to walk past Abe's and... You know what? It's like a damn three-ring circus in there. Everybody's screaming. Christ. The owner, Mr. A.B. Belsky, didn't walk around the store. He kind of tromped around. He made a loud thumping noise when he walked past you. Seemed like the floor shook. I remember he always seemed to be carrying large pieces of what used to be some kind of animal on his shoulder. He lugged these carcasses, I guess, from the big walk-in box up to Lou, one of the butchers who'd hack it up into smaller pieces for the showcase. A.B. usually wore an old beat-up fedora and a sweater with holes in the arms. He always rolled up his sleeves and you could see how thick his arms were. He tromped around the shop with a fat stub of a burned-out cigar in his mouth, yelling everything. In the winter, he'd yell, Close at the door, will you? For Pete's sake, I'm not heating the neighborhood already. Opposite for the summer. Close the damn door, will you? With the flies. <laughs> what a character. My brother loved him and his wife Reba, who, by the way, also wore a ragged sweater, just like her husband. Lookalikes. The store was always pretty busy, especially on Saturdays when my brother got lots of tips from his job delivering orders. Pat always had a couple of bucks on him. He made good tips because he was nice to all the customers and they loved this guy. According to all my buddies, big brothers pretty much all tended to be like that. They were nice to everybody else, but pushed us little kids around all the time. Most of the time, I felt like he considered me an unwanted appendage, like a wart or a boil he wouldn't mind having removed, or at least lanced. 
Pat saved up enough for the record player from his tips, and we didn't know how much it cost, but knowing how Mr. Chinitsky operated, it was certain he made money on the deal. There were little shops of every description on almost every corner of the neighborhood. Chinitsky's place was nothing like Abe's. It was only a little bigger than our living room and as messy as all get out. It was stacked with cans, bottles, boxes, mops, brooms, mousetraps, clothespins, everything imaginable. Some of the stuff was covered with a thick coating of grayish brown dust and must have been there for years. Like Kelly and Son's custom spider traps and Ringwald's special hoof liniment. One day, I was at the store with my mom. She asked Mr. Trenitsky, why did you have boxes of hoof liniment around when there aren't very many horses anymore? He smiled and said, Oi, horses, schmorses, so what? Mrs., you can't sell stuff you don't have, and winked at her. Mom squinted her eyes, then smiled, looked at me, nodded, said, I see, Mr. Chinitsky, it makes sense. And on the way home, she said, Billy, I think Mr. Chinitsky's a little nutty. He was a really nice guy, though, so you could just walk in and say hi without getting chased out like at Feldheim's on the avenue. If you even walked in the doorway of his shop, Feldheim would raise his cane and yell, If you not buy, get the hell out. Us kids often popped in on old man Feldheim just to hear him yell. We'd run like hell, then walk down Girard Avenue, waving imaginary canes, laughing and yelling in a fake accent, If you not buy, get the hell out. <laughs> Along our usual route up Girard to the park, we'd pass Steffi's Bar. Their front door was always open, and you could smell that stale beer, cigarette smoke, and white cap pine oil reek wafting out onto the sidewalk. Pretty gross. It was pretty dim inside, but even in the afternoon, you could usually spot a couple of guys sitting and leaning over the bar. We liked to yell that if you not buy bit in the front door and watch the guys at the bar jump, rattling all the change in their pockets. Gus, the bartender, yell, you little bastards, get the hell out of here. We'd run like hell and laugh all the way to the park. Mr. Chinitsky, on the other hand, was happy to see anybody walk into his store. His typical greeting was, Hiya, what do you need? Chinitsky's had display windows on both the 30th Street and the Style Street sides that probably hadn't been washed in my lifetime. A sheen of grime and soot pretty much shielded from casual view the furled, fly-spotted advertisements in the windows. Display window didn't really tell the story. There wasn't much on display except more boxes and things piled up in the alcoves by the windows. The grime on the windows filtered the sunlight pretty well and cast a yellowish glisten wherever the rays penetrated. It gave the impression of a steamy, airless, hot and humid Philly afternoon in August. You Philly people know what I'm talking about. Like when the few people you see moving around on the sidewalk look like they were slogging in wet cement and gasping for breath. That kind of day. Anyway, it was very tight inside the store, even for us kids. There wasn't much space for customers. Mom went to Chinitsky's pretty much only for emergency purposes, like if she ran out of canned salmon for Friday supper. Mom said he was too expensive and the store was dirty. 
He didn't sell candy or soda either, so there was no reason for us kids to go there except to run errands for mom or the neighbors or just to holler in, hey, when mom sent us to Chinitsky's, she'd tell us, hurry, before it gets crowded. Now, if three people were in the place at the same time, it was crowded. One section of it housed the display case that ran the entire length of the store, where you would expect to see meats and cheeses, you know, the usual stuff you saw in most of the other grocery stores. There were a few crumpled boxes, papers, and old magazines. Kind of like something you'd see down at the rag and paper place on 31st Street. It was really, really crappy. Mr. Chinitsky always appeared disheveled. His eyes seemed huge in his thick glasses and his wild, fuzzy, lint-flicked hair had an orange tint to it that all combined made it appear like he had just been struck by lightning. His apron splattered with what looked like food and possibly paint was tied up to his chest covering a perennial plaid shirt. He was always smiling. Mom said Chinitsky always looks like he just got out of bed. Dad said Chernitsky was a real slobbo. Chernitsky's central command center was the narrow space between the counter and the rear wall. If you asked for something, he'd point you to it on your side of the counter. If it was somewhere in the explosion of products on the shelves behind him, he would demonstrate incredible skill with a long pole with a grabber attached to it. With his grabber stick, he was able to reach up to the highest shelf and pluck things off like nothing. He'd locate the item and with the grabber easily snatch a can or box, pull it out, let it drop, and catch it with his free hand. He was really something with that grabber, wielding it kind of like a scalpel and catching stuff like Andy Semenik. Maybe that's why all his kids went to medical school. When my brother bought the record player as a bonus, Mr. Chinitsky included in the deal several 78s that featured classical orchestral recordings and vocals by people we never heard of like Jan Pierce. My favorite recording was sung by this guy, Pierce. It was called Makushla. And like I said, since my brother was undergoing some kind of a Jewish indoctrination at Abies, I figured Makushla was a song all the Jews sang. My dad said, nah, nah, it's not a Jewish song. It's an Irish song. It's about some guy who loves this girl. I guess her name's Makushla, right? And she dies. I thought, Oh, thanks for clearing that up for me, Dad. He added, the guy who sings it, though, is a Jew. One thing I came to notice was that the Jews and the Irish were good at talking and singing about sad stuff. Makushla fit right in. Anyways, I didn't care if it was about the Jews, the Irish, or anybody else. I loved that sweet Irish song sung by Pierce. I listened to it so much that I learned it by heart. Sometimes I imagined I was Jan Pierce singing Makushla to all the old Irish ladies that came over to visit with my grandma. I imagined them looking at me and smiling to one another and saying, Isn't Billy's voice wonderful? He sounds just like that Jew on the record. Oh, I'd be so proud. One of my brother's first 45s was Don't Be Angry by a guy named Nappy Brown. After school, he'd burst into the house singing, Oodly, 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 don't be angry. He liked that as much as I liked Makushla. Nappy Brown's song was really cool, though, and gosh, did it ever make me laugh when Pat sang along with him. I wish sometimes that my parents would listen to the words.
Like I said before, my brother was being drawn into Jewish culture by dint of working at Abe's and now talking with Mr. Chinitsky. He was learning about a lot of Jewish stuff. He'd say, oi, gewalt, or just oi a lot. And when he said this stuff, mom would just look at him, laugh, and shake her head. Dad had just yelled, why don't you talk English? My brother told us about different foods he liked, matzahs, borscht, and some strange Jewish delicacy they sold at Abe's called bagels and lox. Nobody in our house but Pat knew what any of this stuff was. My brother told us that Jews ate it, and it was expensive. One day I went to Abe's to say hey to my brother and to see what lox actually looked like since he talked about them all the time. Pat said they were an Abe's showcase, and at first I didn't know what I was looking for. I asked Mr. Belsky, where are the lox, Mr. Belsky? He pointed to little shiny slabs of pink stuff in the showcase. Pat came over and explained that the Jews put it on these round rolls with holes in the middle called bagels. I said, bagels? Like the dog? Pat said, no, klutz. That's beagles. I said, bagels. Then they put this soft white cheese on top of it. Oh, it's delicious. I yelled, oh, disgusting. A.B. started yelling and Pat chased me out of the store. Pat brought home some leftover locks. It had a heavy-duty fishy smell. My mom, who generally cooked a pot roast till it looked like a rock, went nuts. She yelled at him for putting that stinky crap in a refrigerator. Dad just yelled, what the hell's the matter with you eating goddamn raw fish? It smells like old bait. Pat seemed to enjoy the reaction of his audience and proceeded by topping the cheese with a slice of the pink-colored locks. He paused, stepped back from the kitchen table, peered lovingly at his creation, and when he was certain we were all watching, he took a big bite. Mom gasped as Pat chewed and smiled with bits of cream cheese tinged with pink flecks caught on his teeth and in the corners of his mouth. She shrieked and scared the crap out of us. She cried to my dad, Why is he doing that, Hardy? Why? Eating raw fish in my kitchen. She started to gag. Dad hit the roof. Mom's shriek had caused him to spit out some of his schmitz. He yelled, That's it! That's it! Get the hell out of here with that shit! Eat it in the yard! Pat smirked, taking another bite, smiled, and sauntered out of the kitchen and sat on the back step and finished his expensive Jewish treat. Since my brother bought the record player, Mr. Chinitsky thought it'd be good for us poor Irish to learn something about good music, not what he described as the shit we listened to. He loved all kinds of music, especially classical, which was known back then as long hair. Mr. Chinitsky said the term long hair came about because a lot of the orchestra leaders of the time had crazy long hair that made them look mizhigas. Pat, always mining for arcane expressions to thrill and delight our parents, asked what mishigas meant, and Janitsky said, you know, Pat, like up at Abe's, mishuga. Well, that certainly cleared that up. Anyway, he knew a lot about all kinds of music, including klezmer music, which we poor Irish never heard of. Hard to say that klezmer was actually music to my young ears, it sounded a lot like a car crash to me. Lots of screechy noise with fiddles, clarinets, and accordions. It was unbelievable, and my parents called me a noise box? Chinitsky was a warm and fun guy. 
When we were in the store and he was telling us about the classics, he told funny stories and always encouraged us to be eating something. Not free, mind you, just that we didn't have to pay for it right then. He wanted us to put things on the tab. I didn't get it, but it sounded good to me. I asked Mom why he didn't want the money. His pushing the tab on us annoyed her. She was insistent that if we didn't have enough to pay, we were to tell Chinitsky to put it back. She said, I'm on nobody's tab. So when we went to Chinitsky's for classical music instruction, or if we ran out of something and were desperate, I thought the idea was great that we didn't have to pay for what we bought, not mom. Pay. No tab. No money. Put it back. I didn't get it. I thought adults had very, very strange ideas. With Mr. Janitsky's help, I became more familiar with music in general. Then I discovered two guys that I really liked. Mr. Nappy Brown and Mr. Sammy Davis Jr. Mom and Dad both liked Mr. Sammy Davis Jr.'s songs, not so much Mr. Nappy Brown. Our family, typical of immigrants, was not fond of anyone who didn't share the same roots, especially black people. I never knew why. It's just one of those things. I guess it's like hating the British. Because we were Irish, we were expected to hate English people. We all loved Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. They were English, weren't they? I, I just didn't get it. We weren't supposed to like the Italians either. But St. Anthony and the Pope were Italians, weren't they? So was my dad's buddy Lefty and Mrs. Roselli, Anthony Roselli's mom. She was so nice. She always asked me to stay for supper when me and Anthony were playing. Mrs. Roselli cooked a lot of stuff with noodles and tomatoes. It always made me hungry when I played over Anthony's especially when his mom was cooking, which was most of the time. Sometimes she'd ask me if I'd like to taste the grave from the big pot heating on the gas range. It was the most wonderful thing I had ever tasted. I never got to stay for dinner at Anthony's or anyone else's house for dinner except for relatives. I guess because when she was young, some of the old Germans in the neighborhood gave mom and her family a lot of bullcrap when she was growing up because she was one of those poor shanty Irish. Now, as a grown-up, she didn't want the neighbors to think she didn't have enough food to feed her family and had to rely on our friends to feed us. My mom's parents were immigrants from Ireland. Brewerytown seemed like a magnet for immigrants from all over the place, like Poles, Ukrainians, Rom Romanes, Hungarians, Spanish, English, and Africans. Most of the immigrants hung out with other immigrants from the same place. My mom hung out with a lot of old Irish people. When we listened to them talking, it sounded like they didn't like anybody that wasn't Irish. I wondered if they only like Irish people. Why didn't they stay where they came from? Bunch of Irish in Ireland. Us kids didn't care where the other kid came from. All we liked doing was having fun. Adults, what a bunch. Funny thing happened one Sunday night while we were watching the Ed Sullivan show. We were excited because Mr. Sammy Davis Jr. would be on and we all loved his songs. Mr. Sullivan introduced Sammy Davis and this black guy walked out. My dad said, who the hell is that? Were we ever surprised when he started to sing? 
Mr. Sammy Davis Jr. was black. Holy Toledo! We all liked Sammy Davis's songs, but we didn't know he was black for Pete's sake. Now what do we do? Well, lucky for Pat and me, it turned out that even though he was black, my parents liked his songs. What a relief. We were still allowed to like Sammy Davis and play his music without dad complaining. Our family had a narrow musical exposure with really, really weird rules. Mr. Janitsky, Pat, and the record player served as a catalyst in our understanding, appreciation, and broadening of our music experience. They were key elements in the expansion of our experience over and above, as Mr. Janitsky put it, the shit us poor Irish listened to. Hats off to Ed Sullivan, Sammy Davis Jr., Nappy Brown, Jan Pierce, my brother Pat, and of course, the music man himself, Mr. Chinitsky. L'chaim. Chapter 2 of the Brewery Town Memoir draws to a close. I was so fortunate to have lived in our polyglot neighborhood. Today, when I go to Manhattan, I hear the international languages spoken on the street and it takes me right back to B-Town, the United Nations by the railroad tracks. Many weird and wonderful things occurred in our neighborhood as the sun rose and set over the black tarred roofs of 30th Street. Next time I'll recount the adventures of my buddy Jackie during the hot summer of 1952 when his dad decided his family needed a swimming pool. Yes, you heard correctly, a pool. <laughs> As Rodney Dangerfield once described the size of one of his hotel rooms, Jackie's yard was so small, even the roaches walked humpback. Be sure to tune in and bring your suits. Until next time, check us out on Facebook at Doug Scott and Tales from Second Street. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>